Hello, and welcome to the Renwick Centre podcast. Today we speak to Anne Korn, an American educator, author, researcher, and advocate for those with low vision or blindness. What do we mean when we talk about visual independence for students who are blind or vision impaired? Is this something that can be taught? Is there a sequence we should follow? We speak with Anne Korn today more about these topics. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to today's Renwick Centre podcast. My name's Trudy Smith. I'm the Manager of Continuing Professional Education at the Renwick Centre. Today we are joined by one of the legends in the field, Dr Anne Corns. Anne, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I live in Austin, Texas, but I'm originally a New Yorker. Uh, grew up in New York City. I taught kids with, um, with visual impairments in, Illinois, in the state of Illinois, and then back in New York City. Um, and then after teaching children, I went back for my de- degree and was a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and later at Vanderbilt University. And that's where I retired from. So now I'm back in Austin and I am enjoying retirement. <laughs> well, retirement because you're still, still so involved. It's amazing the work that you're doing. And we're talking today about visual independence. So mm-hmm. talk to us about how and why you came to think of visual independence, sort of in a progression of steps. Well, one thing I didn't mention is that I have a visual impairment Mm -hmm. and I have low vision. And I think my beginning thinking about this was way back in the 1960s when I was in eighth grade. And I remember bringing in my eye report to the teacher. We had to do it each year. And she looked at me very sternly and she said, no, this, this isn't yours. That must be a mistake. And I said, looked at it, and I said, yes, that's mine. And she said, no. And she referred to one of the other students, Mary. And she said, Mary has that kind of vision, not you. <laughs> and I, I had to get my mother to write a letter. That oh, my goodness. My vision. So it, it was a question, why is it that we have the same acuity, but we function differently? Um, when I became a professional, everyone seemed to focus on visual acuity. And it reminded me of that day with the eye report. In 1981, I was still curious about why uh, some kids were functioning in different ways than others when the visual acuity was the major emphasis. And so I pulled together a theoretical model of visual functioning because it was my way in part of explaining the differences in how children use their vision. Um, So for example, um, if someone has, let's say visual acuity of, you use metric, right? We do. Uh, 660. And they uh, are having trouble reading indoors If you take them outside, they might be able to read something. Uh, But then again, if it's someone with photophobia, they do better indoors. Sure. So that really hit me. Um, And they could both come out with the same acuity. Um, One day, when I needed to take photographs of babies for an upcoming conference, I followed one of the teachers, and I met 11-month-old Sarah. And Sarah had ocul- ocular cutaneous albinism. 
And I was only there for taking pictures, so I was keeping quiet, but I noticed she wasn't using her vision. I also noticed that her mother was putting all the toys in her hands and also the food. And basically, why would she use vision? Mom said, we were at the ophthalmologist's office and he said her vision is probably somewhere between 2060 and 2200, which would be in metric up to 660. Sure. Yes? Quite significant, okay. yeah. Okay. And um, the teacher looked at me like, would you take this? And so I started to help the mom understand what those numbers actually meant. And I started to talk about the things that little Sarah could probably see. And I remember the mother saying to me, okay, if I'm gonna teach her how to, to use a vision, what's the first step? Sure. And that's how I got to thinking about this. Great, and, and, and such a, a journey along here. So what are these steps? Can you explain what's involved? Yeah. Um, I don't know whether they're steps or concepts, and I think they're more written for adults, for the adults around the child to make sure that they're providing the opportunities for a child to learn to use their functional vision. So the first one is visual reach. And this refers to what you see when your eyes are open with, the, with uh, standard glasses or contacts or whatever the child is wearing. And in, in visual reach, you have to know that an object exists and where it is. So you can know that from just opening your eyes and noticing as others would, or from what you hear and then direct your eyes, or it could be someone directing your gaze saying, look to the left. So the child knows that an object exists. Sure. The next, they also need to know at what distance it is, uh, and also be aware of things that are happening in the periphery. You also want to know what they are tending to. So let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking with a parents group and the parent of a four-year-old was talking about how she and her uh, four-year-old daughter were in a, the car and she started to tear up. And she said that she recalled doing the same trip with her seven-year-old son who has normal vision and how they enjoyed looking at the horses and they enjoyed looking in, in the distance and finding the different animals and different kinds of trees and so on. And she realized she can't do that with her four-year-old daughter. Right. Well, I knew the child and I knew what she could probably see in the distance. And... I tried to explain to her, well, you know, she's not going to know that that object out there is a horse unless you direct her gaze. Moving up to teenagers, we do a pre-driver awareness at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired, where kids are given the pre-driver awareness uh, introduction. And it isn't a whole course, it's just if you are thinking about becoming a low vision driver. And a lot of those kids have never attended to the periphery. And that is not going to help them to become a safe driver. So we see some of this, these skills of not attending to what is out there uh, on their own. So in visual reach, 
they have to be able to interpret what is seen and also make a decision, do I respond to the object or not in a timely manner? The second step is extending visual reach. And this is when you're using a behavior or using a device in order to improve your functional vision. So it could be a child gets closer to an object or uh, tilts a head, such as using the null point with nystagmus, um, or it could be just moving your whole body. So you're outside and you want to read a street sign, but it's a sunny day and you need better contrast. You move to the sunny side of the, of the sign. So here a child needs to be curious about an object, understand that others can see something they cannot, because if they don't know that, they're not going to take the action in order to get the information. They have to have the skills to take the action and they have to be able to do it unaided or they have to be able to have the skills to use a device, whether it's an iPad, a handheld monocular, a handheld magnifier. Uh, they need to have those skills and also the willingness to let others see their action or use of a device. The third step is visual efficiency. And this is about how well a child uses his or her vision. Once a child is aware of and can attend to objects with either innate or learned skills, um, they then have to learn how to use the vision in an efficient manner. So it could be that they may not see the details of certain letters, but they're able to read or they may see the letters and learn how to read faster and improve their sense of functional vision at that point. Here you're going to help children with unaided vision be able to use the cues, such as noticing that a broken shadow is, uh, that there's going to be a change in the surface, a strategy such as uh, using eye movements to deal with a restricted visual field, or using an optical or electronic devices device. Lastly, we have visual independence. And this is the extent to which a child uses or plans to use vision to execute a task. So this is when a child may say, no, I just want someone else to read it to me. Or they may say, I'd like to be able to do it myself. And I've counseled many, many kids who are habitually letting others do for them. And let me give you uh, uh, an example. I was talking with a 14-year-old who was not doing very much. She let other people do for her. And I said, uh, when you want to make hot chocolate at home, uh, and there are directions on the package, who reads the directions? And she said, mom does. And then I said, you're going shopping with, with uh, your mom for, for uh, a clothing, an article of clothing. Who reads the sizes of the, of the garments um, and the prices? Mom does. And we went through a few of those. And the mom said, yeah, I really peel her grapes, meaning <laughs> I do everything for her. There's no independence there, is there? No independence. And I remember a teenage boy 
who I said, let's not talk about your optical devices. I said, do you think that we can make a list of everything that everyone else does for you? And then you decide two things you can do for yourself. So here a child needs a positive self, a sense of self as a person with a visual impairment and a willingness to allow others see you look a different way or use a device, a good feeling about doing something for yourself and knowing when, also knowing when assistance is really the more efficient way to go. I go through an airport, I'm not gonna try to locate the signs and read. <laughs> Most sighted people have trouble with that often. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Especially international airports, I always ask for assistance. Um, and also to know when it's okay to just say, you know, for this, I'd rather someone else do it for me. Sure. So, I'm very, even though I am a low vision driver, someone else says, I'll drive. I go, here are my keys. Use my <laughs> okay, so those are the steps. Sure. And are they the same for all children with low vision, Anne? I think they are. I think starting with learning how to use your unaided vision, starting to learn to uh, take actions, starting to develop your skills for visual efficiency, and finally making your own decisions about uh, becoming visually efficient or, uh, I'm sorry, visually independent. Those are the decisions. And a child, I don't think, should ever be pressured into visual independence. But I think without the opportunities to learn to use peripheral vision, to learn to use your optical devices, to expect that you're going to start feeling good about, about doing some things for yourself. I don't think that the teacher or the parent is doing right by the child. Um, and yeah, I think that it applies to all kids, but I think my message is really for the adults around children. <laughs> so is that the hardest part of helping ch children to move through these steps, changing the mindsets of the adults around them? Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me give you an example. Uh, when we did uh, the project PAVE, providing access to the visual environment, we were, it was a low vision, multidisciplinary low vision clinic. And uh, I, I created this at Vanderbilt University. And I, I really don't care for the use of large print, although I have met a few children for whom, yes, it is appropriate but I really would prefer kids never even start with large print. But I said to the teachers, we had four full-time teachers traveling to see the kids in schools and homes. And I said, don't, take, don't suggest that their schools take away large print. Leave it there. Let, let's see what happens. And sure enough, the kids started to let the large print go. Mm -hmm. And Part of it was because they were receiving the support. It was okay to find another way that, and to show them why other ways could be more efficient. And the kids didn't want to use large printing anyway. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's uh, the hardest part is the adults. Um, and I can't say the teenagers are easy to work with, but they, they sure are. <laughs> My is that the face. nature of being a teenager? <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I love talking with the teenagers. It's when they are really starting to make some lifelong decisions about the significance that having low vision is going to have in their lives. 
Is it going to be the thing that defines them? Or is it just something that's going to become a part of their everyday life like anyone else's? And we're going to share more information. You've written an article that we're going to attach to the podcast notes so that people can read a little bit more about this as well. This has been fascinating and I'm sure there are lots of people thinking differently now about how they're going to support students. Thank you so much for your time today. You're very, very welcome. A big thank you to Anne for taking the time to speak with us on the podcast this week. The article she has written and mentioned within the podcast has been linked within the podcast description for you to engage with.